Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the November 2015 Southern California Research Lodge Fraternal Review by William R. Logan, Leadership in the Lodge. The role of a leader in a volunteer organization is a special challenge. It requires thoughtful understanding of the group to be led. This is especially true of a Masonic organization since there will be those who have proven capabilities for leadership and others who have had no training or experience in any type of leadership role. When leadership is discussed regarding the Masonic Lodge, it is extremely important to understand the authority and responsibility of the Worshipful Master as it applies to the operation of a Lodge. He is the leader by virtue of his office, and everything done or left undone becomes his responsibility. One of the best sources of leadership training is our U.S. military establishments, in my opinion, and a limited number of our members are privileged to have participated in this training. In South Carolina lodges, you could say the junior warden station becomes the first real test of a person's leadership and planning capabilities. There he is charged with the planning, preparation, and coordination for all refreshments at each meeting of the lodge, in addition to the other duties of his station. During the next year as senior warden, he should begin to develop his plan for the coming year as worshipful master. This should include setting realistic goals to be accomplished during his year as master, as well as selection of qualified and dedicated members to fill appointed offices and assist him in accomplishing his goals. Selecting a leadership style at this point will lessen anxiety and leave time for other activities once he is installed as master. In most cases, the style of leadership chosen by the master determines how many of his goals will be accomplished. Flexibility on the master's part is necessary. It is understood that because all members are volunteers, the old adage attributed to General George Patton of lead, follow, or get out of the way will not work in a Masonic Lodge or any other volunteer organization. In addition to this necessary planning, the new master must be thoroughly familiar with the rules and regulations of our fraternity. A frequent perusal of the current Ahiman Rezon and our aid to memory before becoming master is most necessary for him to be the unquestioned leader of his lodge. If a master is flexible and shares his responsibility and authority with his team members, he may get less public attention, but will surely achieve greater results than the worshipful master who has difficulty in delegating authority and tries to do it all alone. Leadership can be taught, so you, as worshipful master, should lead by setting the example. Lead by educating your brethren in the meaning of Freemasonry, and your lodge and Freemasonry will be better for your efforts, and your year as worshipful master will be pleasant and fulfilling. The following article is from the November 2015 Southern California Research Lodge Fraternal Review. Lessons and Responsibilities of the Progressive Line by Carl W. Sandoff II, Past Master. It has been said that the candidate's progress through the degrees is a metaphor for man's journey through life. His time prior to his initiation is considered emblematic of youth and adolescence, as an entered apprentice, representative of a young man learning his craft, as a fellow craft, his maturity in which he is a competent craftsman and establishing a family, and as a master mason possessed of the wisdom necessary to lead and teach. 
On becoming a pedestal officer, I was presented with an interesting question. It was postulated to me that every organization makes something, whether it is that organization's principal purpose or not. I was asked what masonry makes. My first thought went to the standard reply, masonry makes good men better. And then I realized that didn't work, as making good men better is a process and not a product. So I took some weeks considering what I knew of masonry and considered what the result of making good men better was. The conclusion I reached was that as we progressed in our Masonic education, we, of necessity, practiced the results of these lessons outside the lodge and ultimately created civilization. Several years ago, I was working for a company which employed many men who were not born in the United States. Their view of masonry was a bit different than what we have here, and they all tended to be surprised at finding me a mason. They stated that they thought being a mason was reserved only for the highest leaders of government and business. I explained to them that such was not the case, that leaders did not become masons, but rather masons became leaders. Little did I think at the time that this would be the start of a mental journey of some distance. I had just attended the Junior Warden's Retreat offered by the Grand Lodge of California, was shortly to attend the Senior Warden's Retreat, and was actively taking the courses offered to become a Certified Lodge Administrator, a goal I soon attained. It was a couple of years later that I started thinking about how we made leaders without these formal educational activities. Classes and formalized training sessions are rather new concepts relative to the history of the fraternity, but the making of leaders is not. So how did we accomplish this? First are the degrees themselves. As initiatory processes and rites of passage, they serve to alter a man's view of the world and how he reacts to it. In this reaction, he tends to exert some influence on his immediate social environment. But in trying to figure out how these effects change a man into a leader, I realized that the degrees really only prepared a man to learn and taught him how to do so, but did not give the skills themselves. It was in learning the ritual and the performance of it that he first began to develop those skills. The most important of these is discipline. The ritual is rigorous, and to do it right, hard. In this, it is much like chess, easy to gain the fundamentals, but difficult to master. It is delivered in a precise fashion with archaic language and unfamiliar grammar. And while any mason may qualify to perform specific ritual parts, it is the progressive process of learning all the ritual which induces the qualities of leadership. This, then, is the basis of the progressive line. Each chair in the line has certain duties and responsibilities and teaches certain lessons. It is knowing what these duties and responsibilities are that leads us to recognize the lessons being taught. Ideally, the progression to master is eight years, then an additional year as master. Interestingly, the typical medieval or renaissance apprenticeship for stonemasons was no less than seven years, so this fits in well with that origin. Like the apprenticeship, the progressive line builds new skills on those already learned. Going through the degrees and sitting in lodge teaches us the basics of the signs and passes, the general patterns of behavior. Having the first six positions appointed means that the man has demonstrated his desire and merit in being promoted. Simply being well-liked and charismatic will not assure one of a chair. In studying the line, we find that the appointed and elected positions also teach different types of skills. The appointed chairs teach the management skills of the lodge and are further grouped into functional subgroups. The first three chairs focus on the preparation of candidates and the second three the management of the lodge. The foundation lessons are taught in the two stewards chairs. 
Historically, these officers were responsible for providing refreshments to the lodge. They served under the direction of the junior warden and were essential to the social functions of the lodge. In some lodges, they still fill some of those same functions, being needed in the kitchen and dining room and helping with the tasks of serving and clearing the meals. In most modern lodges, however, their principal duties lie in the preparation of candidates for the three degrees. Their ritual duties consist primarily of performing basic floor work and learning the skills necessary in the handling of the rods. In performing these duties, they learn teamwork and how to seamlessly follow each other's lead. The junior steward initially is in charge of the floor work, yielding the lead to the other officers as the ritual progresses. Stewards work together in several capacities as escorts and guides in preparing the candidate for each degree. They learn the forms applicable to each degree, and in the process, give the candidate information necessary to his role in the ceremony. This is less trivial than it may seem, as they must convey the necessary knowledge without disclosing the reasons behind it or any other information, as would allow the candidate to anticipate what was about to occur. The senior steward begins to have spoken parts in the ceremonies, and it is while sitting in the junior steward's chair that one has time to learn that work. While in the senior's chair, the pace of learning extends, adding the work of the marshal. It is in these chairs that the process and discipline of learning each position is developed before being installed into it. This, then, is the essential part of the steward's learning. From here, the senior steward advances to the marshal's chair. In this position, he is responsible for keeping order in the lodge, which teaches corresponding duty. He is responsible for escort of the flag and grand officers into the lodge. He is also responsible for the first ritual contact the candidate has with masonry. In this position, he learns the importance of respect and dignity, as well as the importance of exercising authority with a cool and practiced demeanor. As his ceremonial duties are light, he has time in this chair to prepare for his next step. Thus, we see the balance developing between the demands of the current chair and the effort needed to prepare for the next. Moving on to the chaplain's office, we see that balance in action. Besides delivering the invocation and benediction at meetings, he is responsible for prayers at all other Masonic gatherings. In this role, he learns to speak extemporaneously and gains presence of mind. He is also responsible for the charges and perambulatory speeches for each of the degrees. In a sense, he is the order of the lodge. He learns presence of position, public speaking, and the importance of reverence. This position also is the first introduction to Masonic tolerance, learning to refer to the Supreme Being in interdenominational Masonic terms, emphasizing the spirituality of the fraternity and its separation from more traditional religious terms. The lessons taught here are subtle but necessary for maintaining harmony in a diverse society. It is in this chair also that the pattern of one year of extensive ceremonial learning is alternated with a year of reflection. The complexity of the concepts now being demonstrated requires his full concentration, and so the effort to prepare for the next year is correspondingly light. In the junior deacon's chair, the mason learns to be alert to the world outside the lodge as well as conditions within. He serves with the tiler to guard the lodge. As the tiler protects the lodge against interruption, the junior deacon must be alert to alarms at the door and must inform the master should such occur. His essential duties call for him to notify the tiler of the state of the lodge and the level of security to be afforded. Though the door of modern lodges may be opened from without, it is the ceremonial responsibility of this officer to open and close that door. 
This chair teaches the necessity to always be alert to the surroundings. It is also a time when the pace of ceremonial learning increases. It is while in this chair that he takes on the task of learning the most concentrated ceremonial role, again showing the balance between immediate duties and preparation for the future. The senior deacon chair is a point of transition. It is either the most senior of the junior offices or the most junior of the senior ones. Ceremonially, this is a most intensive position in the lodge. Compared to the work preparing for this chair, his preparation for the junior warden station is routine work, allowing time to be spent in considering the relationship of this officer to the candidate. Many Masons have told me that they felt a special bond with the brothers who served to conduct them through their degrees. This office teaches the true meaning of brotherhood. It is while conducting candidates that the senior deacon establishes that special esprit which truly cements the members into that sacred band or society of friends and brothers. He does indeed spread the cement of brotherly love. His duty is to make the candidate understand he is part of a special group, and while so doing, learns the importance of being a mentor. Additionally, on taking this chair, he finds a new responsibility thrust upon him. Up to this point, it is relatively easy to step aside and not proceed through the successive chairs without seriously impacting the functioning of the lodge. On taking the senior deacon's chair, a commitment is made to complete the journey, for dropping out after this step will force the other officers to put in exceptional effort to fill the gap. It is at this point that the nature of the lesson changes and a third subgroup appears. While sitting in the senior deacon's chair, a man not only learns advanced management skills by beginning to be assigned tasks in planning lodge programs and projects, but in conducting the candidates, he also becomes directly responsible for their progress in masonry. In this chair, he gets his first taste of leadership and is prepared to move to the final subgroup, that of the pedestal offices. From this point forward, the offices are referred to as stations, indicative of their increased responsibility. It is at this point that the lessons of masonry become less philosophical and more practical. The wardens will find their actual ceremonial duties more restricted, though they will still have significant work in their preparations to fill the master's chair. They will find that they gradually take on the responsibility of conferring the various degrees and as such will set the tone for the work of the other officers. Their lessons and responsibilities now turn to leadership where their prior responsibility has been management. With the master, they form the executive team of the lodge. While they still find themselves preparing for the ceremonial work of the successive chair, they now find themselves getting on the job training as leaders. The exercise of their duties teaches the lessons of the office. I stated earlier that leaders do not become masons, but that masons become leaders. It is through filling the chairs of the wardens and master that that transition occurs. The junior warden is responsible for seeing to the refreshment of the lodge. His traditional role sees him, under the overall planning of the master, managing the refreshment budget. He directs the stewards in seeing the refreshment served and maintains the pertinent aspects of the lodge. In this, he may need to work with the temple board in seeing that the proper facilities are provided and maintained. He needs to oversee inventory to assure adequate supplies are ready and fresh. In the modern lodge, he is also responsible for overseeing the social activities of the lodge. In a particularly active lodge, this includes delegating events to other officers for their direct management, but he ultimately must assure the success of these activities. In such a lodge, this position, coming on the heel of the senior deacon's ceremonial duties, is especially difficult. Additionally, the junior warden is responsible for investigating any alleged misconduct by members of his lodge. He needs to familiarize himself with the Masonic Code, the lodge bylaws, and the Grand Lodge constitutions. 
he must learn jurisprudence and the ability to neither palliate nor aggravate the offenses of your brethren. Essentially, this position teaches self-control and rational deliberation. The senior warden is responsible for Masonic education, oversees the candidate's coaches, and is responsible for tending to brothers who are sick or in distress. He also must be prepared to fill the master's chair if, for any reason, the worshipful master is unable to perform his duties. He also prepares the calendar and budget for his year in the East. The leadership responsibilities are enormous, and what he learns is commensurately great. Administratively, this year is the most difficult. He learns compassion, tempered with realism, and caring for brothers experiencing difficulties. He must recommend proper charity while husbanding the resources of the Lodge. He must learn to separate needs from wants and be diplomatic in not being condescending when offering nor offensive when limiting assistance. All the skills he employs in this year will serve him well in the future. When sitting in the East, the Worshipful Master occupies a unique position. In the Lodge, his word is undeniable. His decision is final and unappealable. Thus, he must use great discretion. He is ultimately responsible for everything in the Lodge, all it is and does. How he delegates and guides his officers is perhaps more important than what he does himself. Ideally, the majority of his work was done while he sat in the West, in the senior deacon's chair. His plans were made, and he must now see them executed. His greatest work is in dealing with the unforeseen and making such changes as will be unavoidable. We are not judged by the quality of the plans we lay down, but by how we deal with the inevitable occurrences which upset them. This, then, is the real work of the Master. He serves, also, as teacher to the Lodge. He should lead by example the lessons he wishes to convey taught by his own conduct, not his words. He is called worshipful not because he is worshipped by his Lodge brothers, but that in his worship of the Supreme Architect of the Universe, he teaches others the importance of that reverence. The greatest lesson of all, however, perhaps comes on the day his successor is installed. The step from that high days that exalted position in the East, back to the sidelines, may well be the most difficult journey he takes, and in it he must learn the most difficult lesson of all, humility. So the author Carl W. Sandoff II, past master, was initiated, passed, and raised in Pacific Rim Lodge Number 567, Long Beach, California in 1998. He was installed as master of Orange Grove Lodge Number 293, Orange, California, on the ninth anniversary of his raising, and has subsequently served his lodge as candidates and officers coach. He is an active member of Southern California Research Lodge for over 10 years, and a member of the Order of the Eastern Star. Outside the Lodge, he has been a competitive archer at the national level and an Olympic event official, and actively studies medieval history, including trying to trace the history and development of the fraternity. The following article is from the May 1999 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, and is titled Leadership Secrets of the Cheshire Cat, by William Herbert Skip Boyer, 32nd degree. I love the leadership secrets of concept. There's a new one out right now at bookstores on the leadership secrets of General Ulysses S. Grant. They tend to be creative and fun. I recently gave the winter commencement address at Northern Arizona University, and I use the same concept, the leadership secrets of the Cheshire Cat. I won't burden you with the whole speech, but here's the part that sets the theme as we try to define leadership. Let me explain what I mean about leadership. Do you remember Alice? Alice in Wonderland? She was not having a good day, and if you remember her story, you'll remember that it was largely a problem of leadership in Wonderland. 
Lewis Carroll's delightful tales of Alice and her adventures with strange animals, stranger people, and animated decks of cards have been popular children's stories for more than a century. They are, as we all know, far more than simple children's stories. They are a remarkable satire, a carefully crafted jest on life in Victorian England that still applies to life today. Alice's real problem in Wonderland was one of leadership, a situation we can all appreciate. Consider the sort of day she was having. First, she followed a white rabbit who was more interested in time management than real leadership. Following someone like that is always a danger. They are usually so worried about the appearance of things that they forget what it was they were trying to accomplish. Alice followed the rabbit with his large pocket watch and ended up in a deep hole, which is usually the way that sort of thing works out. Then she met a caterpillar who may or may not have been on controlled substances and who suggested that she could solve her problems by trying a bite of magic mushroom. It was the latest trendy thing to do. Try it. Everyone else is. Sort of like following the latest management theory or fad just because you don't want to be left out of the fun. So she did, and the next thing she knew, she was too big for her shoes and frightened everyone around her. Then she tried another trendy solution, and suddenly she was too small to accomplish much of anything. And when she turned to ask the caterpillar just what the devil was going on, he, like any good consultant, had already left town. It was all very confusing, and things just got curiouser and curiouser. After that, Alice met a variety of people with solutions for everything, from mad hatters to a queen who issued the sentence first before hearing the evidence. Off with her head. We know leaders like that, too. The high point of the day came when she met the Cheshire Cat. She found him perched in a tree at a crossroads, right about where we are standing today. Which road should I take? she asked the cat. Where do you want to get to? the cat asked helpfully. I don't know, admitted Alice. Then, advised the cat, any road will take you there. The Cheshire Cat's message is one you should remember. If you don't know where you're going, it doesn't make any difference how you get there. If you don't have a plan, it doesn't matter what you do. If you don't have an objective, who cares if you will ever reach it? If you don't take responsibility for your actions, who will? And perhaps the most important question of all, if you won't lead, then who will? The following article is from the August 2000 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry Southern Jurisdiction. It's titled The Elements of Masonic Leadership by Stephen L. Guffey, 32nd Degree. Planning, promptness, organization, inspiration, and encouragement are tools of leadership that promote Freemasonry. There are five basic parts in holding Masonic office. Planning, promptness, organization, inspiration, and encouragement. Using all of these will result in an organization that is harmoniously run and enthusiastically attended. They apply to Blue Lodge, Scottish Rite, or any other Masonic group. Planning is the first step and provides the level beginning in each endeavor. Planning meetings sets direction and destination. Without destination, we could never arrive, and without a plan, we would not know where to go and what should be done. Planning should be for more than just the next meeting. It should be for your whole term with the flexibility to change and adapt when needed. Promptness is like setting the cornerstone for the meeting. It marks the beginning and brings all the parts to that point in time. Being on time shows that you care enough to put out the effort. Your effort, in turn, encourages others to strive for timeliness. Example is a gentle teacher. Being early gives time to meet and greet your members and visitors, as well as time to go over your meeting notes. Just as every builder needs a trestle board, the master needs organization. His knowledge of the correct usage of ritual and his ability to set and follow the agenda get the job done efficiently. Organization ensures that important things are given priority and that all things are addressed as needed. 
Giving inspiration enriches your year as a leader as well as the lives of your members. You can inspire members by giving each a job that is appropriate and meaningful to him. The Bible says no workman be ashamed, so every man needs a work to accomplish and to be approved. Recognition is the approval we all seek, and enthusiasm follows. Recognizing your members can be done by pats on the back at each meeting, positive notes in the trussle board, and by presenting them with a certificate of appreciation or another honor. Lastly, encouragement causes all of us to grow to our potential, and the Masonic organization, in turn, to progress towards its goal of teaching the great principles of brotherly love, relief, and truth. To encourage a brother may be as simple as being polite in your conversations. At other times, it may mean you will have to go out of your way and do something more substantial, such as providing a physical need. Planning, promptness, organization, inspiration, and encouragement are all tools of leadership that can be used to promote the principles of Freemasonry. The following article is from the March 2000 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA, and it's titled Masonic Leadership, Doing the Right Things, by E. Arthur Hogland, 33rd Degree. To succeed, Masonry needs true leaders, not just able administrators. Unless you change direction, you are likely to arrive at where you are headed. All of Freemasonry must heed this old Chinese proverb, We need skilled and committed leaders at all levels who will help other Masons be capable of joint performance through common goals, common values, the right structure, along with the training and development they need to respond to change and to perform. That is the fundamental leadership task, according to Peter Drucker, the founding father of the science of management. In his book, The New Realities, Drucker also identified the most critical problems facing leaders of nonprofit organizations like Freemasonry developing rewards, recognition, and opportunities, creating a unified vision in the organization, devising a management structure for an organization of task forces, ensuring the supply, preparation, and testing of top people. Leadership is the key for masonry to once again become a preeminent, viable, and growing fraternity. We need leaders who innovate, focus on people, inspire trust, and have their eye on the future. Only such leaders will assure Freemasonry and Freemasons make a difference in the world. These leaders must work cooperatively for the common good of the Masonic fraternity, regardless of the organization they may currently represent. After all, aren't we all Masons? Didn't each of us take the same obligations? Warren Bennis, in his book On Becoming a Leader, identified personal and organizational characteristics for coping with change and forging a new future for what he calls learning organizations such as masonry. He wrote, Leaders manage the dream, communicate the vision, recruit meticulously, reward, retrain, and reorganize. Great leaders set out their vision and get others involved to follow on their own. Bennis differentiated leadership from management. Administration is the often used term in Masonic organizations. Managers administer, focus on systems and structure, rely on control, and keep their eye on the budget. Leaders are interested in direction, vision, goals, objectives, effectiveness, and purpose. Leaders innovate, focus on people, inspire trust, and have their eye on the future. Leadership fundamentals are similar for nonprofit and for-profit organizations. Now, most organizations recognize leaders based on their ability to perform and provide effective leadership. They are not entitled to leadership positions because of progression, birthright, or arbitrary promotion, as often was the case in the past. 
Successful leaders know where they are going and are agents of change by inspiring others to share their vision. Planning is a behavior found in the best-run corporations and in preeminent volunteer organizations. Planning for the future is a subject included in the preface and first section of the Membership Development Manual published by the Imperial Council of the Shrine, a book recommended for use by all Shrine temples. Planning is choosing a course of action, making decisions to do things in an orderly fashion, and providing for things to happen that would otherwise not happen. Perhaps past Grand Master Ben Franklin said it best, failing to plan is planning to fail. Planning first requires a vision. Walt Disney said it simply, if you can dream it, you can do it. Similarly, Bert Nannis, in his book Visionary Leadership, demonstrates that human behavior in organizations is very much shaped by a shared vision of a better tomorrow. Developing and promulgating such a vision is the highest calling and truest purpose of leadership. Most everyone listening to this article is a member of some sort of Masonic or Masonic-affiliated organization. All such organizations are concordant or appended to several Grand Lodges. A few have stated their organization's vision. Some have a strategic plan, as does the Scottish Rite. But what about Freemasonry in total? Are we doing things right? More to the point, are we doing the right things? Bennis points out that when you think about doing things right, you think about control mechanisms and the how-to of accomplishing things, the process of management or administration. But when you think about doing the right things, your mind immediately goes toward thinking about the future, thinking about dreams, missions, strategic intent, and purpose. Bennis says that is the essence of leadership. The 1994 report of the Imperial Shrine Membership Task Force included one section on leadership. It seems self-evident to us that leadership in the Shrine, and indeed throughout our Masonic-related organizations, is one of our most pressing needs. The report did not address the concerns of continuity nor training, but it did include selection and tenure. Those with leadership talent and skills developed elsewhere should be identified and called for service through a well-qualified nominating committee and progressive lines may be too long for today's leaders. Nanus believes there are many with leadership skills, but that leadership is much more difficult than it once was. He writes that not only corporate and government, but also cities, churches, schools, courts, hospitals, museums, and other institutions, such as masonry, all seem to be sorely in need of the kind of visionary leaders that built them in the first place. Leaders who are determined and confident in the sense of direction, unafraid to take risks, bold and courageous, inspiring and uplifting. He concludes, it may not be an easy process, and it is not likely itself to turn around a hopeless situation, but if there is one thing that can profoundly increase a leader's chance of success, it is developing and sustaining a compelling organizational vision. The fundamental beliefs of dignity of manhood, strength of brotherhood, and the virtue of truth must be the basic principles for a vision for our fraternity. Here is one vision. Freemasonry will be a relevant, preeminent fraternity committed to attracting, developing, and retaining men of high quality who strive for self-improvement and the opportunity to make a difference. With such a vision, Freemasons can view the future as worth achieving as each Mason encourages and promotes Masonry. As a result of a compelling vision achieved, a man who is or becomes a Mason should expect to find in his fraternity a non-discriminatory brotherhood of men who believe in a supreme being an organization well-led with the opportunity to learn and to lead, outstanding fellowship, enjoyment, dignity, pride, and personal connections, a role with his family and his community, 
and participation as a brother with his friends, neighbors, sons, supervisors, and peers. Masons must convince men and their families that to be a Freemason is worth their time and effort. Friendships and self-improvement, including leadership development and networking, must be among the benefits we offer any man who asks for a petition. Freemasonry, our lodges, valleys, temples, clubs, all must truly provide these benefits. Freemasonry must be ready for this man through improved methods of teaching, responsive leadership, and by the examples he sees when he joins. Masons must help him recognize that all of Masonry, including the concordant and appendant bodies, are relevant parts of the new century and worthy of his time, his attention, his participation, and his support. In his book and video, Who Moved My Cheese?, Dr. Spencer Johnson offers insight for each of us to discover how to deal with change. Similarly, excellent resources are available from the National Masonic Renewal Committee of North America and the Center for Leadership Excellence. The many lessons learned from these authors and others can provide Masonic officers the opportunity to become Masonic leaders who assure that Freemasonry provides quality in everything it does. Leaders who optimistically commit to achieve excellence and long-term success as they share a plan to reach a vision of the preferred future. Leaders who inspire Freemasons to achieve joint performance as each responds to change and performs. Leaders who not only do things right, but do the right things. Leaders throughout the Masonic fraternity who change direction before we arrive at where we are now headed. The 21st century is the right time to be a Mason. It is time to do things right as we do the right things, so we once again become the preferred choice of men in our communities, attracting and retaining more youthful, community-active men as we rekindle the interest and activity of our existing members. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.